And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. Yes, we are here today reading the 1980s story for Bite Sized Bits. And what did you choose this month, Maggie? I chose The World's Greatest Fisherman by Louise Erdrich. Something that Harmony and I were bad about last season that we are rectifying this season is that we didn't have any Native American voices last season. So this season, we've got quite a few episodes that really sort of help rectify that because obviously that's not cool. Native American voices are obviously very important to our national sort of like literary and cultural tapestry, so to speak. So unlike last episode where I was really good and the work we were talking about was actually published in 1970. This one, or this one was not published in 1980, but I chose it because it was published in 1979, right at the tail end of it, I think. And it actually, so this short story actually became the first chapter of the novel Love Medicine, which is Louise Erdrich's first novel. And it actually won upon debut the the National Book Critics Circle Award. So that came out in 1984. And since then, Louise Erdrich has been one of the, she's just been a really prolific and very decorated author. She has more than 20 novels published, let alone the work she's done in poetry and nonfiction and things like that. So this first part of information that I pulled about her is from the Poetry Foundation. Uh, So just paraphrase from there and we will leave that linked in the bio because these aren't my words and we're not plagiarizers. You know the drill at this point. So Louise Erdrich was born in Little Falls, Minnesota in 1954 as the daughter of a Chippewa Indian mother mm-hmm. and a German American father. Erdrich explores Native American themes in her works with major characters re- representing both sides of her heritage. Many critics claim she's remained true to her Native ancestors' mythic and artistic visions while writing fiction that really sort of explores cultural issues that face not modern-day Native Americans and I think more largely mixed-heritage Americans. And she grew up in North Dakota, which is where her parents taught at a school run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, and she attended school at Dartmouth. She was actually not only part of the first class of women admitted to the college, but her freshman year also coincided with the beginning of the Native American Studies Department. So that was sort of where she got her beginning. And I misspoke before. She's actually published 40 novels, but I'll let Harmony talk about that. <laughs> Oh my gosh. She did publish 40 novels, or nearly 40, and um, short story collections, poems, and children's books. The World's Greatest Fisherman, which is what we're reading today, was published in 1979, like Maggie already said, and then became the first chapter of her novel, Love Medicine, which came out in 1984 and won the National Book Critics Circle Award. And after that time, she published the 40 novels, story collections, poems, and children's books. Erdrich has often brokered the delicate politics of the American Indian reservation system and explored the relationships between its residents and the adjacent communities. I first 
encountered her work a couple of years ago, I read, let me pull up the exact name of the novel really fast. One of her more recent titles, The Future Home of the Living God. And I actually wasn't a huge fan of it at the time that I read it. But I thought that she was a really like beautiful writer and that the story itself just didn't really connect for me. I think I read it probably in like 2016 or 2017. It was pretty shortly after it came out. And since then, I've done a lot more digging into her work at large. And I've really connected with her poetry, but haven't ever really circled back to her prose. So in this Bite Size Bits, I thought it'd be a great time to kind of come back to her prose for me personally, uh, especially given the fact that this short story ultimately ended up what being what like launched her extremely wonderful and very long career. Uh, her most recent book actually just came out a couple of months ago this year. It's called The Night Watchman. So she's still out here, you know, producing really great work and stuff. So that's kind of all the background, both on her, how I know about her, um, and a little bit about the the history of this short story. I thought it was really interesting, though, actually, that the short story ended up being the catalyst for like a whole novel. Yeah, me too. I didn't know that when I first read it. I was completely blind on this. I didn't knew, know who Louise Erdrich was, although her name sounds really familiar. So I'm, I must have encountered her work before. I just don't. I just don't know it. I mean, she's published a lot. It's possible that just like through being in the book com- community by osmosis, it's like in your mind. Yeah, because the name sounds really, really familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think that this would turn into a whole novel. And that definitely now I think could change my reading of the story itself. It makes me really want to read the whole story and see what happens. I think it's interesting because, I I mean, obviously it was, this story came out five years before the book itself was actually published. So I think there probably was an intention, at least when it was maybe first written, that it would be a self-contained story. And it does read as a self-contained story, right? Like, as much as I'm interested about all the characters that are introduced in this section, it's not like after reading these pages, I'm like, oh, this feels incomplete or like I want more. But she really did, I think, balance in a really nice way the desire where it's like, Now I'm really intrigued and I would like to go read the rest of this novel now that I know that it exists. Like I wouldn't have been unsatisfied, dissatisfied if it was just the short story, but I'm into the fact that there's more about these people, these characters that I can go explore. Yeah, and their family dynamic. So what were your first impressions of this story, Maggie? That it was very violent and that it talked about food a lot. (laughs) It did talk about food a lot. The food is all symbolism. It's wild. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, I was, I just read this story earlier today. And as I was reading it, I was like, oh shit, this is going to be so hard for Maggie and I to talk about as two white ladies, because there is just so much and so many interesting dynamics that exist outside of our experience because we do come from a place of large privilege and are a part of a people, you know, that completely destroyed Native cultures in North America. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of interesting dynamics and it's wild. Where where do you want to start? I The first thing I p- picked up on and wrote down was the eggs and the color of the eggs. And I wanted to know what you thought about that. So everything in this story is very, I think, coded with color and intensely, I would say purposeful sort of gendered way specifically in the way that you know white people typically talk about gender something interesting Mm -hmm. actually that I find about the fact and this could be me totally 
over like over reading into it just because I know that this happened. But prior to World War II, pink was actually considered to be a masculine color and blue was considered to be a feminine color. And something in Nazi occupation switched those two things. So because I know that part of her American her heritage is being German American. I wonder if like she leaned, she leaned really intensely on those two dynamics. And I wonder if that fed into that at all. Cause it wasn't like, I mean, world war two happened clearly before she was born and stuff. Right. But like, it's probably something her father was alive for and, and remembered. Um, mm. So that really struck me, but something that I found interesting about the eggs is that at no point in the short story, do we talk about, live eggs we always talk about hard-boiled eggs or rotten eggs or june's mother is referred to at the end of the story as being a dirty old hen so i thought it was really interesting because i really read the eggs and actually a lot of the food references here as in a way they should have been the start to new life right like they should have been fertility they should have been growth but they're being consumed as food. They're dead. So they weren't given that opportunity. And instead, they're nourishing people. They're like being repurposed. And that really struck me because we should probably give a quick summary of the story. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking that. I was like, maybe we should <laughs> talk about that. Well, the story starts off with a woman named June. I don't believe we know her name yet. And she's traveling somewhere. And there's like some sort of implication I would say that maybe she's like coming out of an abusive relationship of some sort and she's traveling back to her home on the reservation and as she walks by the first the first part is a description of her and she is old and haggard essentially is what they say and I'm paraphrasing but she like walks like a young person and her body looks young or something she has a nice bod that's kind of mentioned several times and a dirty old man in a bar like hits her up and she consents to that and then ends up fucking him and then ends up stranded alone in winter time in the wilderness i don't know if it's really the wilderness it's north dakota so it's probably like the desert but winter and tries to walk home and dies and then we cut to her family after some time has passed it's two cousins of hers and it turns into a first person narrative and I believe her niece, her niece is the first person narrator mm-hmm. and she's a grown up and she's with her grown up aunties and they're discussing June's death and they're not entirely nice about June. And then we like learn more about her and her son comes and her son is like this really moody, but really hot guy who is really awful to his white wife and people are mad that his wife is white and her, his wife is really uneducated and like thinks the world of him and kind of like lets him abuse her. And then the grandpa and grandma come in of the family and they're kind of talking about June and they're laughing and stuff happens. And it's just like this family dynamic. Grandpa's brother comes in, a hat is shared, pies are broken. Somebody almost gets drowned. And that's that's all I got for you. <laughs> Yeah, that is pretty much what happens. So to me, something that struck me about the eggs, right, is that even though they aren't able to crow into their full potential, they don't live out their full life. They're still there to nourish June at first. 
And then as you move throughout the story, it nourishes other characters in other ways. What we find out as we go throughout the rest of the story is that June and Patsy, who is the first person narrator throughout the rest of the story, actually had a really close relationship. And June's sort of like wisdom and almost friendship and their close relationship as they were growing up really nourished Patsy and the way she thinks about the world and the fact that Patsy is the only person as a lot of violence unfolds in the story who verbally calls it out who verbally stands up for June who verbally stands up for Lynette largely because of what June taught her and what June's experiences taught her I thought ended up being a really interesting metaphor for the fact that June's life ends up being cut kind of short because she dies prematurely. She's described as being older, but like she's probably middle-aged, you know, like she she could have had a much longer time to live. Her parents are still alive. But that energy is sort of redirected into into Patsy in certain ways as Patsy sort of takes those lessons and moves forward with it. But then I don't think it's always like that because the eggs are also described as being rotten like something is wrong, you know, with the eggs to begin with. That goes farther beyond the blue and the pink eggs at first, but eggs come up constantly in this short story. They definitely do. And we talked, I mean, Maggie talked about it a little bit before, but like June actually refers to them as lucky, but they they weren't actually lucky because she ended up dying, unless we see that as an escape. One of the things that came up for me just now as we were reviewing Louise Erdrich's biography is that uh, she is mixed race and so is Patsy our main character and the dynamic between the relationships of white people who are like marrying into this family of mostly native people is really interesting and in the beginning it's a white man that June ends up sleeping with and he is kind of like he's not he doesn't hurt her or anything, but, like, he does seem like a creepy old dick guy. Yeah. I don't know. What did you make of that relationship dynamic? Because I think, not to jump straight to it, but, like, the most shocking and most compelling thing for me reading this story was the relationship between Lynette, the white woman who married June's son, mm-hmm. Delmar, and Delmar's constant abuse of her. Because there is... I don't know. I I haven't interacted with that many Indigenous people, but I have, in my adult life, interacted with two Native men at certain times. And both of them told me point blank that they hated white people, which is completely understandable given what white people have done to their their homes and uh, the ways in which they have been oppressed in their families. And so I wondered, like... I wondered if some of this hatred was kind of directed at that, at the fact that Lynette is white and therefore is a part of the oppressing class. But Lynette herself is very, very ignorant and she doesn't seem to hold a whole ton of privilege. It's not like she's willfully ignorant. She never got the opportunity to be anything but ignorant. She knows nothing of her family. All she knows is that she has some Norwegian heritage. She's never seen the world or been anywhere. Yeah. I don't know. What do you make of all that? I thought it was really interesting as well, especially because it said that Patsy's father was redheaded. That's how we know that he's white for the first time. But everyone in the family comes to accept him. He's viewed as being okay by everyone else. And Lynette is still almost proving her worth 
to a certain extent, it seems like, to the rest of the family. I think something else I thought was really interesting that also showcased that tension that you're talking about. Let me find the passage real fast. It comes relatively early on. Patsy is sitting in the kitchen with Zelda and Aurelia, and they're making pies because everyone's making pies. And they start talking about Lynette, and this is what happens. There's that white girl Zelda peeked out the window. Oh, for God's sakes, Aurelia gave her heady snort again. What about your Swedish boy? Learnt my lesson. Zelda wiped firmly around the edges of Aurelia's dishpan. And I will thank you not to take his name in vain. Oh, Zelda, the younger aunt murmured sadly and feelingly. She never finished her sentence, but that beginning was enough. Stung by even the remotest hint of pity, Zelda stiffened and walked out. Which I thought was really interesting because for Zelda, clearly some of this animosity is like very personal as she also had a relationship with a white person that clearly didn't end well. But I do also wonder a little bit, you know, given the fact that Christianity was so forcefully and terribly shoved down the throat of Native peoples, if part of that pity was coming from the the use of the word, oh, the, the phrase, oh God, and then I would thank you not to take his name in vain. Like if it was like simultaneously both of those things, like for Aurelia, who is, who is, you know, like actively pitying her. I thought for me, that sentence really just showcased so much of the tension that's happening here. The ways in which Native peoples have been forced through genocide, through unfair laws, through all of the terrible things that white people and white culture have done to them to assimilate in as many ways as possible. And the tensions I'm sure that must produce for Native peoples who either decide to date white people or be with white people or decide to embrace Christianity, which in my opinion, all of that should probably be a personal choice, but like I'm not Native, so my opinion doesn't matter and I don't really know how Native peoples actually feel about it. So that passage just really stood out to me, especially as a white person reading it, as like all of these entangled ways we have forced Native American identity to become really complicated by making it deal with just like whiteness and white culture so constantly. Yeah, I agree. I also don't really have an opinion on this because I'm a white girl and I don't really think it's my place to have an opinion. But it reminded me a lot, kind of similarly to what you're saying, from what I've heard from like media I've consumed by Black women, where there's a lot of talk about like white girls taking their men, you know? And the idea in their words is that like, well, there's only so many good men out there. Like, why do you have to take them from us? You already oppressed us for so long. It felt like a similar sort of sentiment to me, what Zelda Mm -hmm. was saying. But it is interesting that when the roles are reversed, when it's a white man, unless it was Zelda's Swede, they don't appear to be as judgmental about that. Or maybe they are. Like, what? June, what, what is wrong with June? Is that what it is? Like, she slept with a lot of white men? Or is she considered a slut by the family? I don't know. So, like, June is, it. she's part of the family in the sense that, like, she is Delmar's mother. But she is divorced from Gordy when all of this happens. So I don't know if part of it is, like, the, like, stigma of divorce, which was, I think, for all people, probably much higher in the late 70s than it is today. Yeah, but Zelda got divorced. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I don't know. 
it's hard. It's it, they don't really give you a lot about June or why they dislike her, but it seems to stem from childhood. There's a really provocative scene later in the short story where they talk about the fact that Zelda and Aurelia almost hung June when she was a child while mimicking cowboy movies that they had seen, which is a lot to unpack. And I think we should, but maybe a little bit later, because like this animosity towards June happens throughout the entire short story. Something that I thought was interesting, though, is that so June dies after this encounter with this white man. Uh, and she decides that she needs to leave his truck where they had attempted to have intercourse. It seems like he really just falls asleep on top of her, ultimately, in the midst of everything. Uh, so she tries to walk back and, like, ultimately freezes to death, I think. And I feel like that's an unfortunately common trope in both real life and in fiction. But something that I think Urgent does to subvert that trope a little bit is that we do get June's point of view for a little while. She's not just a ghost throughout this entire short story. And I wanted to know what you thought of the fact that we did get a snippet of June's point of view and how that changed your view of everything else that happened versus if we had maybe just come into like the family drama. I think it gave me more respect for June than what was depicted by the larger family because they don't hate her, but they do kind of down talk to her and even Patsy's descriptions of her kind of June's depicted a little bit gritty grittily like one of one of the things Patsy really appreciated about her is that she would talk about like womanly stuff that you would only tell other women which I assume has something to do with sex um, I think and violence she talks about the fact that Gordy is violent to her yeah okay yeah I don't know I appreciated getting her point of view I also thought Especially too, because it let us it lets us know directly what happened and what June's kind of choice was in the matter, because it wasn't like she was kidnapped and raped and, you know, disappeared. We get the sense in the very beginning that she is incredibly like destitute. She's impoverished. She relies almost entirely, it seems, on like men's money on various monies of men's part of the reason she goes with the dude at the beginning is because she sees he has a lot of money yeah 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 she hasn't eaten and then she's fed and she doesn't seem to care that much about like reaching her final destination we don't get a sense that there is a lot there for her and when she does have this encounter with the man She talks about, like, the feeling before they have sex of, like, being in front of a large mouth that's breathing on her or, like, feeling a tongue. And then suddenly she discovers a sort of nakedness. She talks a lot about the sensation and feeling of her body. And right before she's walking into the the unknown, into, like, the wilderness, so to speak, she feels that that nakedness. And that nakedness means it's, like, some sort of purity for her. Like, she doesn't have these clothes on. It's just her mm-hmm. and nothing else. So I think it's almost a little bit empowering. And when I was first reading this account of June, I thought that this story was going to be even more about the fact that many Native women do end up going mi- end up missing and nobody does anything about it. And I think it is a little bit about that because 
the family doesn't actually know what happened to her. Only the reader does, yeah. Yeah, but then it becomes much more about the family dynamics in general. So yeah, I appreciated it. And I think without it, I would have focused less on June as a character. She wouldn't have been such a main character because that introduction made her a main character throughout the story and gave her a presence always. Totally. And I thought that was really powerful as well. You're right, though. There, There's a weird... I'm going to use the word tension again, and I'm going to hate myself for it. There's a weird tension in the first part of the story that's told, that's narrated by June, between like a feeling of, for me at least, like empowerment and almost freedom, and also a lack of choices, like simultaneously. Like at the beginning, there's this part where she says, she felt that underneath it all, her body was pure and naked. Only the skins were stiff and old. She would get through this again, even if he was no different. So... I think that something I found compelling is that she she's with this man this whole time and she desperately wants him to be different and then finds out he isn't. But the way she talks about herself is very comfortable in her own skin. Even when I think sometimes she's potentially uncomfortable with what's happening, which is a weird thing. But she also says, as Harmony and I were talking about before, she's very destitute, but she describes herself as not being desperate yet. Because if she was desperate, she would call Gordy and he would still send her money. So, like, to a certain extent, she's still living on her own terms, it feels like. I think that a metaphor I found really powerful in that section to describe what I'm trying to articulate is the fact that to lock her door, she has to take the doorknob with her. That really stuck out to me because on the one hand... It seems to me a freedom that she is able to lock the door and feel safe in that way. And on the other hand, I feel like the way she has to do it showcases so much just how utterly fucked the situation she she's in, you know? And it also, I think, hammered home the fact that she's really a wanderer at this point, that she'll take anything and she'll go and she'll do what she has to, you know? Yeah. I also, going back to the Christianity thing, I feel like, and I also feel weird talking about it because I am a white lady. So listeners, you know, if I talk about it in a way that isn't okay, please feel free to let us know because we don't want to do that. But I think that it does kind of need to be addressed. Kind of like the Christianity thing. There's a lot of almost white assimilation that happens, even though this family isn't necessarily fond of white people. And I think that her desperation is why, like the fact that she is living this way might be why the family views her so poorly because she kind of put it on herself by going out and sleeping with other men and like trying to do what she has to, to survive because she is dirty and gross and this is, but this is like, this is what life handed her. It's not like she has a whole ton of choice as we were discussing before. I think also something that needs to be addressed is the fact that it seems like from the characters in this story, violence toward women is common in this specific family and also a relatively like accepted thing, except as I said before, by Patsy, who physically fights off Delmar from drowning Lynette at the end. And I do also wonder, like, 
if part of the reason that so much smack talk of June kind of ends up happening is because by getting divorced, she does take herself out of a violent situation and everyone else isn't able to do that. So I think that there's also a dynamic happening there, especially as we move later into the story and we see how violent her son is and we see her son described as not being just her son, but also very much a product of his father. I don't know. I was just thinking about that a lot. Yeah, me too. I was also kind of thinking about that. Um, and I wish I had had more time to research for this episode, but I know that you did do some research. So when you were researching the Chippewa peoples, do you know how they operated? Like what their cultural operation was before we came along and fucked everything up? Because I know that like, I know it's different with different peoples, but I know a lot of these cultures weren't necessarily patriarchal before Westerners came in and destroyed them. No, I don't actually know a ton about their specific tribe. Okay. Sorry, listeners. (laughs) Part of it was that I didn't want to research too much and then try and sound like an authority in any way on like what used to be versus what changed, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Especially because Erdrich herself is a part of this nation of peoples. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I don't have a great answer to that. I know that a lot of native cultures weren't patriarchal, especially not in the same way that like, you know, contemporary white culture is and has been for a long time. Yeah. So we don't know about that. But I also thought if maybe that could have been some sort of inheritance. And again, I'm not an authority, but I do know from consuming the media of Black peoples who are not the same as Native peoples, obviously, but were peoples that were taken from their home and then like oppressed in very similar ways that from, from the, from the words of black woman, um, there does seem to be, or has historically been an epidemic of violence against them as a result of the oppression that black men face in Mm -hmm. the United States. So I wonder, too, if that's a part of it. Like, the more we hate on certain people, the more we're spreading that violence down, which is a concept we've talked about before in terms of families. But we haven't talked about, I think, in terms of like the national scale. Like if we if if we as a as a nation make it harder for people to get jobs or if we make people more destitute, is it more likely that violence is going to occur? And I think statistically, at least for a long time, the conversation has said, yes, it is more likely, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm not an expert. Yeah, for sure. I was thinking about that as well. Um, There's so much to unpack. This isn't a particularly (laughs) long story. She does such a good job of just like layering in meaning and metaphor throughout the entire thing. Uh, Are you okay if I switch gears just a little bit? Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about Patsy and what Patsy's looking for, because she also, she, I mean, she's the narrator for three quarters of this story as much as June is like the driving force behind what's sort of brought the family together at this specific point. And I thought just from like a, a, a feminist perspective, I guess, you know, we do everything here from a feminist perspective, but the way she was talked about within the family was really interesting to me. Um, she talks a lot about the fact that she has this like solidarity with June and that like June would take her places at the end of the short story. Like she is mentally talking to June out in a field, right. And like almost getting advice from her and they're like sharing experiences. June really treats her like an equal 
um, throughout what we see of her remembered of Patsy's remembered conversations with her. And it seems like at, at the very beginning of the story, Patsy's really looking for that same solidarity with Zelda and Aurelia and doesn't find it first because they are talking kind of like negatively about June. But then second, because they imply that she's not really a grown up almost because she's not married yet and because she doesn't have kids and because she hasn't experienced those things, which I think is extra interesting because she's engaged at the time to her high or to one of her teachers. Um, and they said that um, she's going to teach her fiance things but not too many things, hopefully, which I found really interesting. So I wanted to hear what you had to say about sort of all of that. Because to me, something that I found compelling about the short story was that female solidarity and where Patsy was and wasn't able to find it was a compelling sort of thread throughout it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So, I mean, in terms of the teacher thing, I also found that really interesting because my my cultural perception of the idea of student-teacher relationships, even if it's like in university, tends to be pretty negative because I feel like it's an abuse of power. And her mother, it's also mentioned, like her father was her mother's high school teacher, which was also mm-hmm. really, really weird and creepy feeling to me. But also this story was written in the 19 in 1979 so i i don't know what the cultural outlook for that was yeah and then the idea of teaching things but not too many things there is like a weird the women in this story are kind of in charge at least in the beginning because we are in the domestic sector and the patriarch who is the grandfather is going through his quote winter time And he, like, he can't remember things like he used to. And he actually is at a home and he, like, like a, you know, what do you call it? Nursing home. And then the family will take him on weekends and bring him back to the house so that he can hang out with everybody. I get the sense in the beginning that there was some sort of matriarchy. But you're right that the solidarity aspect doesn't really seem to be there. Because Ariel and Zelda, the two aunties who are sisters are so different and yet they're so alike like they joke with each other and they talk but they're constantly bickering with each other and there is that instance in which Zelda mentions her ex-husband and Ariel like keeps on throwing at it, it at her but she does pity Zelda and I think that that inherently like I don't feel if I did something I, I don't feel like Maggie's ever pitied me I mean, maybe, but I I think she's only ever like empathized with me. I think that that's like not something true friends do. (laughs) Um, Pity is a hard feeling to swallow when you're on the receiving end of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it doesn't, I don't know. I don't know. And the grand, there is a moment of solidarity with the grandmother and the two aunts and Patsy when they're all discussing June and actually discussing that horrific hanging moment but you're right about they're not like june or um, yeah what patsy feels completely on the outside she talks about wanting to have her mother there to advocate for her and like almost not wanting to step up into this role like it's not just that they make her feel left out it's that like she doesn't feel like she belongs and doesn't necessarily know that she wants to belong in this place of womanness 
Yeah. And then the whole not knowing things. I don't, I don't know about, I like, is that sexual? I don't know what that is. Is that just like a sex joke? I don't get it. I thought, I thought it was a sex joke. I think it's really interesting when we're talking about it paired with Lynette, who Zelda at least describes as being like larger and therefore she implies uglier. Yeah. Because Lynette is kind of like the dumb, the dumb blonde throughout the story. And her not knowing things doesn't do anything to help her. No, it doesn't. In fact, I think in some ways it's implied that it makes it harder, worse for her. Lynette is very much regulated to just being little Delmar's mom in a lot of ways. And then sometimes just kind of big Delmar's punching, punching bag. bag. Yeah, which feels like a terrible thing to say, but I, I do think that's how she's described largely in the short story. With the exception of when she's with Patsy. And that is another moment, I would say, of female solidarity where they're, her and Patsy are staring up at the stars and Lynette says something about like, wishing she was up there and Patsy is taken aback because she like didn't realize that Lynette would have the same sort of like complex thoughts and feelings that she herself did. Which I thought was also interesting because Patsy had just been thinking about June being up there in like a dance hall in space, which was also really compelling for me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And then Patsy says that she thinks about going up to the moon but she's always afraid to breathe when she gets there. Like she can't breathe on the moon. And it's explicitly told to us in the story that this is a sad statement. <laughs> like, yeah. The idea, yeah. The idea that you can't get above your circumstances. You can't actually like, she can't even dream. She can dream, but she can't actually envision herself living elsewhere in a different world. Something that I found to be a, sad parallel is that the 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 statement that she couldn't breathe or I can't breathe is mentioned multiple times throughout this story which really just struck me given all of the protests that are happening currently on behalf of black indigenous people of color at the moment that this sentiment has been around for like specifically that statement I can't breathe as a way of talking about oppression has been around for so many decades. And I think it definitely has different weightier meaning now in the police brutality protests that we're seeing. But like that sentiment goes back for a really long time in a way that I think potentially a lot of people in our generation, Harmony and I, don't necessarily always get the chance to unpack if we're white and doing anti-racism work because so much is happening in the here and now to keep up with that like I think a lot of times our privilege comes in as well in just not understanding like the weighty history of sentences like these like I get all of the current implications and then reading this story just brings it a whole other level of like implications and knowledge you know yeah like this is I don't know what the implication was during the time that this was written, but it is a, it is a sentence that we hear so much today and it's repeatedly mentioned in this story, which means it must have some importance to the author and to the people like about, it must have some importance to the culture that she's writing about. Absolutely. 
Something else I thought that was interesting about that scene at the end where they're staring up at space that I also want to bring up is that it's the last mention of food. And it ties to me back to the eggs a little bit because they're pulling new wheat out of the ground and eating it kind of before it's ready. So like, again, we have this idea of like, new life being cut short and redirected as nourishment that I thought was interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. I didn't notice that part. But that is very interesting, the idea of new life getting cut short. And I think that that whole idea is like personified when we talk about both the grandpa and little Delmar, who is Del- who's big Delmar and Lynette's baby. And Patsy really sees it. She describes them both as being winter, but different types of winter. Like little Delmar is ignorant because he has a whole life to live. And like Be a baby. Yeah, he's a baby. He doesn't have to be a part of this life because he's just starting out. Whereas the grandpa, uh, you know, he doesn't have to be a part of this life because he can forget. He can forget everything that's happened and what he's done and his own actions. And he doesn't like, he doesn't have to carry all of these burdens with him anymore because he's no longer capable. And because of that, Patsy feels most comfortable with him at this particular meeting. He bar- He like only even has a vague idea of who she is part of the time. Which is a, an experience I've personally had with relatives with memory issues. And I found her description of it to be compelling. Because usually that's sort of a, described as being a sad feeling. But I think that there is some level of freedom to be able to be with somebody in your family. And just like be without these like pre-described notions of what should be going on. You know, that seems to be what Patty's Patsy's getting at, you know. Yeah. And she also mentions that he just like accepts her. Like you said, like they're you're able to just be and he doesn't he doesn't know her, but he accepts her as one of his own. Yeah. Without even knowing her, which is interesting because we are talking about a family and we're talking about a family of native peoples and there is so much talk about like inside and outside in this story, like to mm-hmm. be an insider and an outsider. Which I think is really exemplified in the scene where Lynette tries to leave um, and so she gets in the car and there's a really tense moment where she's inside the car and Delmar is outside the car trying to get in um, and they have a huge struggle over it until eventually Lynette gets out. That really struck me with the whole insider outsider thing because that's the moment where we see Lynette, the white lady, I think really be connected to some of the other native characters for it kind of seems like the first time, right? Like this weird act of semi-violence that you can tell is like bubbling up into a more intense act of violence is what puts her on the inside, right? Maybe she's not in the house with all of them, but like she's physically inside Mm. the same sort of space, if that makes sense. Yeah, Lynette's such a complex... Well, I don't know if Lynette herself is a complex character, but, like, the descriptions about Lynette, at the very least, are And her circumstances. And her circumstances, yeah. So, like, the moment that they see that there's some sort of oppression that she's facing, they kind of are nicer to her, but they're not really. Like, there is so much that Delmar does and says to her, and for a large, an extremely large part of the time, like, it's just ignored by the men in the family. They just don't, they like kind of care. And you can see that they're like pausing, but they're being apathetic because they feel like it's none of their business. 
And Patsy's the only person who pipes up to essentially be like, paraphrasing here, but like, what the fuck is going on out there? Like, shouldn't we go stop this? Um, but even she doesn't. She just like, is, is this going on? something. Yeah. yeah. And she doesn't really step in until there's, until Lynette's like, could die until she's physically being drowned. You yeah. know, what's interesting is actually Delmar's father steps in, Gordy, and he like physically restrains Delmar. And Delmar says, I'm my mother's son. And this is a phrase that is repeated again in the story over and over again. But like, he's the one, and it's implied, as we've said before, that maybe Gordy was violent to June, but he's the one who stops his son's violence. Mm-hmm. And that scene is also interesting. I know we're probably going to get into it, and there's just so much to pack, unpack. We're 48 minutes in, but this this story is just, like, full of it's different dense. layers. Yeah, it is really dense. That The car that Lynette is in, like, one of the huge tragedies isn't necessarily that Lynette is getting hurt. It's that um, the car itself is getting hurt because the car was, it, it came from June's life insurance money. Yeah, and Delmar physically hurts the car, you know, as much as you can. He pulls off a mirror. But I think something that's extra interesting about that, too, is the fact that Delmar is one of only two people. I think it's either Gordy or Eli. I think probably Gordy, who is even okay with or excited about the car to begin with. Because initially, it seemed almost as, as a point of shame from for everyone that he, like, went out and bought this Firebird. Yeah. But then when it starts getting destroyed, it's immediately viewed in a different light. Yeah. Yeah. Because then that's like all they have of June left. Besides her very large pink gravestone. Yeah. Yeah. What's the symbolism? I know we talked a little bit about this, but like, why is June herself so associated with pink? I don't know. She's got the pink eggs. She's wearing a pink shirt. She's got a pink gravestone. Like. Yeah. Which I think implies that, like, that might have just been June's color, because that's what Delmar, he went out and purchased a, a super big pink gravestone for her. And then bought the Firebird, which also, I mean, I'm sure the car itself wasn't pink, but like a Firebird, it does make you think of, like, red, red. and those kind of colors, right? Like, yeah, man, I don't know. And then at the beginning, I think something interesting, though, is that blue goes away as a color a little bit after that initial scene. Because, like, there's the red and blue eggs at the beginning. There's the blue ribbon. I think the truck is potentially blue. I can't remember off the top of my head. But after that scene ends with the man that June's initially with, blue fades out and pink sort of stays as a color. Even the fact they're rhubarb pies, like, which yeah. the pies are a whole thing we haven't even touched on yet. Like, yeah. So what are our theories about about Dalmar being his mother's son? I guess we don't know enough about his mother to make this assertion, but like there has to be something in the story. See, I thought that was interesting because when Gordy fo- first arrives, Delmar makes some sort of remark or there's some sort of description about the fact that while Delmar wishes he was more like Eli, I think there's like an implication that he's actually like Gordy. And that's part of what implies the fact that Gordy was potentially violent towards June, as well as a couple of other things that are dropped in there. So I think something interesting about the I'm my mother's son thing is like, almost a desire to not be doing what he's doing and like not be the way that he is, and Um. not take after who he sort of actually takes after. That was what I picked up at the very least. 
Okay. I didn't pick up anything. I was just confused. So thank you for making that assertion. Because usually when it talks about him being his mother's son, it's something he's actually saying. Like, it's dialogue, not description. So it's like him asserting that he's his mother's son. Can we also touch, because we're almost an hour in, on the hat? You know, the reason for the the namesake. Yeah. What did you make of that? Because I'm not going to lie, like, I have some half-baked theories, but that was one of the metaphors in this that I think kind of went over my head a little. I really feel like I need a high school English teacher in on this particular conversation, because, like, I don't think I've ever struggled with symbolism this much. There's (laughs) so much of it. I think some of it is easier than others. She's just got it so layered that it's like you could, it feels like you could keep digging in this story forever. It does. It does feel like you can keep digging forever. So Delmar has a hat that says Best Fisherman on it. And Lynette bought it for him. And we don't know how Delmar feels about it. But Lynette says that, like, it's this great prize of his. And he loves having this hat. And he does assert when Eli comes in. And just some backstory about Eli. As we've said before, Eli is Grandpa's brother. Eli is, like, the true Native person. He got to spend his childhood wandering around different reservations and kind of like living off the land, whereas grandpa had to kind of get assimilated and go into school. I think we should clarify by like true native person. I think harmony means the fact that he, as much as possible after reservations were created, was able to still wander Um, And also was trained in lots of, like, traditionally Native practices. Like, they talk a lot about the fact that, like, he lives off the land, he kills his own food. They tell a weird story about eating skunk. That's that sort of thing. Yes. Sorry, you guys. You can't see my air quotes, but they were there. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I just wanted to make sure. I think think usually we we try and lean more heavily on sarcastic tone there, and I just didn't hear it that time. So I wanted to clarify. Thank you. Yeah, and sarcastic tone doesn't actually come up for me very often because I have such a high-pitched voice. So, like, even I can't tell that I'm being sarcastic when I'm editing these episodes. Anyway. (laughs) So, yeah, like, he's the, quote, true Native person in that, like, he has more of that cultural knowledge that Grandpa, unfortunately, lost. And so there's a lot of admiration for him as a character, it seems, because he got to have that experience. So at the beginning, or not at the beginning, at like the beginning of Delmar and Eli's exchange, Delmar says that he is the best fisherman and like he has this hat to prove it. And Eli's like, no, you aren't. I caught this really big fish. And Delmar's like, you're right. You are the better fisherman. And he takes off his hat and gives it to Eli. And Delmar is really drunk. So we don't actually know like how this would make him feel but Lynette is really upset about it yeah yeah because she bought that hat for him and she says that like that's what gives him respect or something in the big city something that I thought was interesting is that at the end of the exchange where Lynette's talking about it she says I'm not looking at it but I think this is almost the exact quote she says to Eli you don't know what he's giving up by giving that to you and so I think that Right, like, Delmar is in a weird place in this story where they also talk about the fact that, like, he wasn't ready for this responsibility, et cetera, et cetera. Like, he wasn't really ready to be the man of the house, so to speak, Um, which I think has a lot of problematic but common associations when 
a young person, especially a young man, suddenly become sort of the quote unquote head of the household. Yeah. And those are common excuses made. But I think that a lot of what we see is that like this whole greatest fisherman thing, this whole greatest conversation is almost Eli, not even I think really in a mean way, like it's a pretty casual conversation for the most part like really forces Del Mar in that moment to realize that like he's not everything he thought he was going to be. And by and like he's not the greatest fisherman in the world, right? Like he's not filling this role the way he probably wanted to be, right? And I think that a lot of Lynette's freaking out is that like it becomes a physical symbol of all of these things that Delmar wants to be, but the hat doesn't fit right, you know? The hat fits Eli. Oh, I mean, Lynette says that the hat doesn't fit Eli. I meant that more and then he fixes it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I also, now that we're talking about it, maybe see it as, like, a symbolism for heritage, because we are talking about peoples who were forced, I mean, like, everyone in this situation, it seems, has been forced into their situation. And because we're talking about Indigenous peoples, we're talking about people who were forced off of, like, their homes and who had their culture completely wiped away. But Eli, as I was saying before, is admired because he gets to keep some of that culture. And maybe that's like what Delmar wants to. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's like a symbol of him being like, I am a wilderness person. You know, I'm, I'm living in the city, but I can fish. Yeah. I definitely think that that has a lot to do with it especially when she talks about like you mentioned before the fact that like that's what gets him respect in the big city and stuff like that like I think that that's all totally interconnected along those lines there is also a moment and went in which Lynette says that Eli should be passing down his stories to other people so that like people get their heritage passed down and Delmar is mad that Lynette would have said something like that but I also feel like Lynette probably genuinely feels feels it because she doesn't know anything about her family, it's stated. And yeah, I don't know. What did you make of that? The idea that like the white woman is advocating for these stories and cultures to be passed down and then the reaction to that. I thought that was a really interesting scene, but pretty much for the same reasons that you did, to be honest, because I think on the one hand, Lynette probably was coming from a personal place of being like, I really don't know who I am and what my heritage is, right? But, like, on the other hand, in this new family that she's found, she doesn't fit in because she's white and therefore advocating isn't really her role. So, like, I feel like there's a weird tension there where I think, like, with everything Lynette does, she really has the best, like, intentions, you know? And she ends up just coming, she just ends up rubbing everyone the wrong way, like, because she is white. So, like, she doesn't have... And ignorant, I would say, too. Yeah. Also, it's also implied, too, that she forced Delmar into the situation by becoming pregnant. Because there is a scene in which uh, Zelda kind of scolds her and is like, well, Patsy's going to wait until she's married to have a baby. So even though she's married to Delmar, it is sort of implied that he impregnated her. And now they're like, they have to be married. Together, yeah. Which I think... Sorry, which I think kind of like plays with the June thing a little bit. Like maybe that is also why they don't like her. She is a slut and you can't be, you can't have, uh, you know, uh, a baby without marriage. And that's like a very Christian thing. So of course Zelda thinks that. And I think that also is like a little bit of 
white cultural assimilation, maybe. But they also feel that way, I think, about June and her maybe sluttiness, which I think is kind of implied in the story. Yeah, for sure. There, I have two things I want to talk about. Is there anything else that you feel like we haven't mentioned yet? No, this is supposed to be a bite-sized bit, so we're supposed to go short. <laughs> I know, and we're going long. We're going long. The There's just two things. The first is that I want to get what your take on the pie metaphor specifically was, because I feel like it served a different, like, a different message than the eggs and the wheat at the end. And then the second thing that I do think we have to address is that weird scene with June and the hanging. Uh, so start wherever you want. I just want to kind of get your thoughts out on both of those things. Okay, so... Grandpa, who doesn't have the same sort of cultural connection to his heritage that Eli may have, is angry that Eli is eating so much of his wife's food and cooking. And the women eventually all leave the house except for Patsy because Patsy's not a grown-up. And they tell Patsy because she has to be in charge of the men because they're all drinking and stuff and a little rowdy that everyone can eat as much as they want as long as they don't touch the pies. And it was weird that she said that because I think there were like, was there some violence going on with Lynette and uh, Delmar during that point? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like, she just doesn't care about that. She's just like, yeah, don't, don't let them touch the pies. That's the important thing that we keep the pies intact. So I don't know what that means. I guess it's like, Food nourishes people, right? And food should be shared equally among everyone. Everyone should get like equal opportunities. And I don't know if that's too much of a harmony reading because that's very much what I believe. But like that food is something to be shared. And if all the men eat it all, then there won't be enough to go around for everyone. I was thinking about that too. Something else that I found interesting about the pie situation was the fact that like, I think especially in white American culture at this time, pies are like one of those weird symbols of just like pure ass domesticity. And I think that there's a lot of ways in this novel in which the women use their domestic natures to shield themselves and hide themselves from some of the violence that's happening. So like the pies are almost this last stand of being like, don't let them touch this because the pies ultimately get destroyed when by Delmar at the end And Patsy has to put them back together. And it says, Sometime that morning I spooned the fillings back into the crust, merry slabs of dough, smoothed over edges with a wetted finger, fit crimps to crimps and even fluff to fluff on top of berries or pudding. I worked carefully. But once they smashed, there is no way to put them back together right. How old they looked, disheveled in their rack. I hadn't known how badly things could break. So, like, I think there's also this really sad... tie between the pies and the woman themselves specifically Lynette in this case because she's the one who experiences the direct violence in the story but I think it's kind of implied potentially that like is something is like a shared group experience for these women pies are also really delicate and hard to make which is a total aside I know but I do think that there's like something to that that like they're they are relatively easy to break and to fuck up which, even though they look sturdy, especially um, before they're cooked. So, like, I don't know what that says potentially about Lynette specifically, who does seem a little, not in a bad way, but just, like, a little bit fragile throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the pies just really stuck out to me. Like, the eggs were definitely prominent 
but the pies felt very like I think probably because they're also the closing image of the short story it's like once something is broken you could never put back together that like image of domesticity again you know like you can't you can't unbreak things even if they look okay on the outside because you could you always know what's truly in on the inside okay yes I think that makes a lot of sense and I also want to add like domesticity I think for a lot of people should mean safety and home and like love Mm -hmm. and that's not something that is being allotted to all people a but it's also not something that I think is necessarily true for the woman in this situation. For sure. Also, however, when we're talking about the pies, we don't ever see an apple pie, do we? No, it's rhubarb and pudding and very red uh, fillings for the most part. So I think that's interesting because when we're talking about as a like a pie in America, the typical the typical image is an apple pie, but like rhubarb for some for rhubarb isn't something that is unanimous across every American culture. You're, you're giving me a look. Is that not true? Uh, I think it is. But that might I just be my so. I You also grew up in New England, though, and I never encountered rhubarb or pie until I came to New England. Okay, fair like, enough. Gr- growing up in California, we did not eat rhubarb pie. But mm-hmm. I could be wrong. So people, like, please come check at me. But I've lived in a lot of places, and I don't think that rhubarb is something that is necessarily, like, something everyone eats. But we see here that Patsy used to eat rhubarb in her childhood. And so I think it's that sort of like connection to childhood, but also to her past and therefore like her familial heritage. Yeah. Yeah. That's super true as well. Rhubarb is also only available. Like it only grows right about now. It's like a spring summer situation. That's why a lot of times you see rhubarb strawberry together because they both grow at the same time. Which I think is also interesting because spring is supposed to be this time of plenty and stuff and growth and all of that. Like, I don't know. I see a lot of metaphors about, about you know, like new growth in this story. Um, but it's been stomped off. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what happened at the end. Like the idea of having this rhubarb pie that can nourish everybody. And this idea of like the rhubarb pie that like, has some sort of thread, at least for Patsy, between her childhood and her adulthood, and it's her familial heritage, is broken, and it doesn't get to become something new. Yeah. And I saw it, I saw it as, a, I don't know if I'm reading too much on a macro level, but I saw it as, like, a metaphor for what white people have done to Indigenous people and their cultures. Like, you can't put it back together again because a lot of it doesn't exist anymore especially because it's being it's trying to be put back together right in a shell of very traditional white american culture like it's trying Mm -hmm. to be repackaged i don't think you're i think that's like a very fair reading of of what's happening here do we have anything else to say about the pies do we want to talk about the hanging scene yeah let's talk about the hanging (laughs) oh boy it sounds so intense because that's how it's described no one dies at this point of the story it's just like one of those very very weird intense things that happens as children sometimes or at least that's how it's tried to play off but the aunts zelda and aurelia who commit this almost hanging are very ashamed of it when it gets brought up yeah so this was hard to read today because we are amidst a huge movement in the united states as we talk about every every episode we're 
more and more people are coming together and be like, like black lives do actually matter. But we also see the opposite of that in which black people now in 2020 are popping up all over the country being hung in ways that are definitely not suicide, even though they're being called suicide and being attacked. And then we also see a lot of kids going out there and like making joke videos where they enact racism onto a black child. Like we see pictures of little white boys stepping on their black adopted brother's neck and things like that. So that's what that really brought into me specifically because it happened as children. Cavalier. Yes. Thank you. That word (laughs) way. And like, they do end up coming together about it. And that is where some sort of solidarity is found. And even Patsy who loved June is able to connect with this because she saw June joking about this story with her mother and her mother. It sounds like Patsy's mother is, was one of the main instigators in this interaction, but it's just so hard to read. (laughs) So what happens, the scene that we're talking about is Patsy, grandma brings up this story and they all kind of look at Patsy. Like, does Patsy know this story? Like, can we get away with spinning it another way? And Patsy's like, no, I've heard this fucking story. So what happened is that as children, Zelda and Aurelia, after they say explicitly watching a lot of cowboy and Indian movies, like that's specifically the word they use, decided that they would be the cowboys and that they were going to punish you know hang june as like part of their reenactment and then they go really far with this reenactment you know farther than i think a lot of ways kids would be kids would normally justify and that's clearly how grandma feels because when someone goes running in to say they're hanging june she like fucking rips out of the house understandably to find her standing on a tree with a noose around her neck and like now it's funny But part of the reason it's funny is June's reaction afterwards, because June goes into the house. She's clearly upset and shaken. Like, everyone knows that she's, like, freaked the fuck out. And she starts cussing out Zelda and Aurelia. Like, she's not happy. And And Patsy's mom. And Patsy's mom. And part of the reason this ends up being a a funny, quote-unquote, story is because even though the three girls who did it got punished... June also got punished for cussing. Which is just so unfair. Like, the two crimes do not match. No, even though she called her mother a dirty old hen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's just not fair. So she got punished for for cussing, and then she yelled at grandma. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, there's this weird thing where it's, like, this story, I think, and I think that this is probably to a certain extent a ubiquitous childhood story in the sense that like something becomes funny when you're a, an adult because something really bad could have happened and then didn't. I think one of the places this gets dark is that June could have literally died as a child because of this. But I think the weightier thing is that like they've just been fed this media that is so anti their own culture that yeah. like the story plays out this way, you know? And they want to be the cowboys. They're not going to be the, I'm I'm using quotation marks and I'm going to say Indians because that's the name. It's cowboys. Yeah. Yeah. That's the language. Quotation marks, Indians. They don't want to be that. They don't want to be their own culture. They want to be the perpetuators of violence. 
And I think that's really, it's also an interesting usage in this story too, because it does drive home the fact that like June has always been the outsider and was always different from the beginning, even when they were growing up. Right. Yeah. I don't know. All right. I think that's all I have to say about it. It was read the story. It's good. We'll link it. Read it before yeah. you listen. Cause we spoil a ton. Fuck. Let us know if you have other things that we didn't talk about because there is so much to unpack. Oh yeah, there's so we probably could have gone on realistically for another half an hour about this, but it is a bite-sized bits. <laughs> yeah. We're already at one hour, 13 minutes. <laughs> Harmony, do you think this was a feminist story? Uh <laughs> um I was thinking about that while reading it, and part of me during the beginning at least was like, no. But then I think because there were moments of solidarity and it eventually, I mean, for the majority of it, it is told through Patsy's perspective, who notices all of these things. I think it could be, yes. I think because it's from Patsy's perspective, yes. I think when I was reading the beginning part about what happened to June, I was a little bit more skeptical. I think I, think I agree with you, or at the very least, I think we have a feminist main character. Yeah. That in a set of circumstances that are inherently anti-female. And yeah. she does seem to be throughout the story trying her best to take action and speak up and take power where she can. So I think for me, for that reason, it does end up being a feminist short story, but it really does weigh heavily on the fact that like Patsy doesn't just sit idly by, at least not all the time, right? Like, she she's thinking actively about the things that are happening and why they're wrong and like why the way Lynette's being treated is wrong. And like she does speak up even if she doesn't take more action until the end. But when push comes to shove, she she is actively one of the reasons that Lynette's life is saved. Yeah. And it's ultimately a story about woman, which was mm-hmm. a little hard for me to grasp because it is such a like not female friendly environment. And most of the people in the story and most of the story is like majority men. But yeah, it's a story that ultimately, especially once we unpacked it, is about the experiences of women within this family. And the ways in which they do and don't come together. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say yes. (laughs) A plus. Yes, questions. (laughs) What else do we ask usually? What are you reading? What am I reading? Um, what am I reading? Oh, I'm reading Parable of the Sour. And I finally started Harry Potter, the last one, in the Deathly Hollows. Harry Potter in the Deathly Hollows. Mm, very nice. Very nice. I am still reading The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Oh, very cool. Very good. And what is your homework for this episode? My homework for this episode, because in the midst of everything else that's going on at the moment understandably harmony and i talking about and advocating about the pandemic has sort of fallen underway but native peoples all over this country were promised eight billion dollars to deal with it and haven't been given that and now uh are the people who are proportionately dying the most and being the most affected by covid so i'm going to go continue to donate to the many organizations that i can link resources for all of this in our episode description about ways that you can help Native peoples who are being really intensely affected by the COVID pandemic specifically right now because of overt racism. Yeah. 
I think that is something I'm going to do as a part of my homework. But also, I think that personally, I really need to educate myself more on the experiences of Indigenous people. One of those instances in which a Native man told me he hated white people actually happened like two weeks ago. And it did kind of really reaffirm that for me. We were at a Black Lives Matter march and he was angry and like, I was polite, but I didn't know if I dealt with it right. But there was a lot of hatred directed at me, but it was like rightfully so. And it like really made me think and be like, oh, I really don't know enough about what's going on. And I really don't consume enough media. And it's almost easier, I think, when it comes to like Black voices to consume that media for some reason. I don't know why, but I haven't. It's just less accessible. You know, like there's more Black voices media on Netflix and Hulu. And there's a lot of Black voices books. And we are having a moment specifically for Black lives. So it just it just really, really affirmed to me that I was like, oh, yeah, there are other people who were oppressed just as badly that I really should also be focusing on. Yeah. And like the whole genocide and everything is just yeah, it's it's intense. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I feel like that even comes to the fact that I addressed like at the beginning of the episode, which is that like Harmony and I fucked up last season by not even like by not including any native voices and when we realized that we rectified it there's multiple episodes this season that include native voices at least um, two <laughs> no at least three two of our novels are written by native authors oh okay well then at least three so that's good but i just meant it in the sense of, like not just bite-sized bits right like this isn't just me shoehorning stuff in they were like actively planned into our season as a way to rectify that but you're right native authors don't get amplified the way that other minorities in the United States do. Yeah. I'm, I mean, outside of education, I know this is going on too long, but like outside of education and like what we learn in schools about Native peoples, I was, quote, lucky enough when I was in elementary and middle school to live uh, near some places in which Native culture had been a little bit more preserved. And so like I got a little bit of education about that Since then, I've lived primarily on the East Coast, and it really hasn't been talked about. It wasn't talked about at all in high school for me, for instance. And yeah, the only interaction I think I've had for maybe the past like 10 years with Native media has been being a journalist, because occasionally we'll get Native speakers in to talk about their experiences. But that's not enough. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I guess just to piggyback off of that, I went the other way coastally and therefore my experience has almost been the opposite. Grew up in New England where there is very little Native culture and heritage that's been preserved. And I know what's left is fighting to the bone to keep it that way, um, which is a movement I, of course, support 100%. But it wasn't until I moved to Washington a couple of years ago that I really was exposed to a lot more Native culture and a lot more Native media And I've been really grateful for that experience now, especially because, as you all know, I work in a museum field, which is heavily ingrained with the really deep and problematic colonialism that specifically happened in collecting practices with Native American peoples, which is a whole other podcast. But because of all of this, I've become more aware of the issue. And that education for me is definitely still ongoing and constant, I think doubled down by the fact that I work on the I work in the field that I do yeah yeah all right so 
Listeners, our challenge for you, especially if you are not an Indigenous person, try to consume some Indigenous media this week. Like, it's important for us to constantly be educating. And we're also, like Maggie said, going to link organizations that support Indigenous people in this episode. So please look at them and donate if you can. I am not a wealthy person, as we've talked about in this podcast. But like, even $5, I feel like, is better than nothing. Mm -hmm. Especially if you're donating and then sharing and telling other people to donate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think next week we're in fact reading Parable of the Sour for the podcast, are we not? Uh, Yeah, 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 we are. (laughs) So look forward to that. We're going back to Octavia Butler. She has stolen our hearts, but we'll talk to you guys next week. (laughs) Bye! Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. <laughs> <laughs>